0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our study in uh, the book of Exodus. Grateful that you would join us today. As we continue through the third chapter, um, maybe not quite halfway, we're at a a turning point, a transition. You remember yesterday, um, Moses receives from God at the burning bush uh, his mission, Uh, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh And Moses says, who am I that I should go? God says, I'll be with you. We pick up the story in verse 13 as the question then turns from who am I to really to who are you? So uh, let's read here. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Uh, Won't we stop there? Well, let me read. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. So attack that on there, Michael. Um, I think again, most people know this story and they, they probably know this uh, moment in it where Moses asked God, well who are you? If they ask me who I, I'm going to go tell them God sent me to you and God told me to let the people go and uh, but who are you? They, when they ask me, who, who is He? What do I say to you? And th- this is a deeply theological, deeply biblical answer. Um, that we don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but there's a lot tied into this response. I am who I am. And in in Hebrew, this is the word Yahweh. It is literally the divine name. and that is a version of the ber- the verb to be. And as I understand it, Michael, the thing that makes this interesting is that it is a verb without tense. So in in English, I, I will run, or I have, I ran, or I am running. We, we have these ways of indicating if, a, if an action is past or present or future. Well, in this regard, the Hebrew to be here in this version of it, in this divine name, Yahweh, does not have a tense. So it is, I am who I am. It's also, I will be who I was. I was who I am. I am who I will be. There's a sense of timelessness in that and not only is that a description but that literally becomes the the way that they call god so uh, even down in a couple of verses here in verse 15 when you see lord in all capital letters whenever you see that in the old testament that is a translation of the word yahweh that is this very word i am who i am and it it becomes shortened um throughout scripture as I am and it, it's a it's a beautiful it, it's a, a beautiful coincidence or a beautiful use of the language Michael that we have simultaneously God answering the question of who he is but doing so in a way that only speaks to himself and doesn't really answer the question. For Moses. I I don't need to answer you, Moses, because I am, I was, I will be. I am the ground of being. I am the source of life, and I don't need to explain that to you.
1: Yeah, this may strike us as being a lot to do for not much, but I think that may be a misunderstanding of how substantially different this is from the context of other ancient writings and certainly descriptions of, of God. Because if you look at some of the ancient texts, you see uh, that there tends to be, uh, as humans at least conceive of gods, we often think of them as being the strongest or the richest or the most powerful. Often humans will conjure a god who is sort of themselves on steroids, who they wish that they would be. And here in the Old Testament, the, this remembrance of the people of Israel you have this encounter between Moses and God. And instead of God being portrayed as, well, I am Zeus, or I'm the one who can throw lightning, or I'm the one who slayed the dragon, or I'm the one who possesses all the riches or all the wisdom, God here is not reaching for a lofty title. God's not seeking to uh, exhibit some form of extra-worldly power. What makes this this description of God's name so spectacular is how little God is compelled in the midst of it to reach or to impress. I mean, ultimately, when Moses asks, we can almost see his face, hear the pushback. You know, well, God, you want to send me to do this thing that surely is going to get me killed. Who am I supposed to send? say sent me when I go do this crazy thing? And God— has nothing to prove to Moses. When God says, I am, we think all the way back to creation as the one who was before all things, but also the one who's immediately present to Moses and to this circumstance, to this moment in the burning bush, this real-life revelation kind of encounter, and also the God who's promising to be faithful to Moses and the people of Israel to respond to those cries uh, that we talked about yesterday. So, Clint, it's just a fascinating response here and it's not fascinating so much in just the intellectual sense but that this will now become for the rest of the entire scriptures the shorthand for who God is and, and God's name all the way into the New Testament when Jesus himself will use this language and will set off just a chain reaction of firework, a kind of explosion of anger from the religious leaders as as he himself leans into this name. So it's a it's an incredibly important transition in Moses's life in particular. It's significant for reasons we might not see right off the bat without plumbing the depths a little bit more and it is unbelievably important to the rest of the scriptures. So yeah, clearly this is an important encounter.
0: Yeah, I think it it is vital i think it's foundational and and i think it's one of those things that we just simply have to understand if we're going to make sense of the rest of the scripture god is not here a character w- with a name and a title god is being god is i am uh who, who what who who do i tell them sent me i i am i am with you i was before you i will be after you this is my name forever And my title for all generations. And again, um, you you may or may not know this, but each time you read the Old Testament and you see the the word Lord written in all capitals, it is this word, this this word Yahweh, the divine name. Um, it, It became so sacred in Israel's faith, in the Hebrew faith, that they refused to write it or speak it. And so they did some shorthand with the word and we get it translated Lord because it was, it was considered so sacred that it wouldn't be given voice. In fact, to this day, many, uh, who practice Judaism would not be comfortable saying or having said that word. Um, Christians have been more comfortable with the idea of that kind of familiarity. But in Judaism, there is still a, a deep reluctance to say that name out loud. And so um, we see vestiges of that in the way that the scripture is translated, and particularly when you see Lord written in all capital letters. But here, um, God has answered Moses. And then Um, I'm going to read just parts of this very quickly, the rest of the chapter here, because what we see next is a foreshadowing of what this journey is going to entail. So God has called Moses. God has assured Moses he will be with him. God has now revealed himself to Moses with this title, this name. And so now we read uh, here in 16, Go and assemble the leaders, the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I have given heed to you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I declare that I will bring you out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land that flows with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. I know, however, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will perform in in Egypt. After that, he will let you go. I will bring this people into such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman living in the neighbor's house for jewelry of silver and gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So um, this is a passage with some foreshadowing in it, um, lest Moses think that the task is going to be easy. Uh, we already begin to see here the tension that will develop between Egypt and the Hebrews, Moses and Egypt, God and Pharaoh. We have seen this brewing since the very first chapters when Pharaoh has essentially declared war on God and God's people. And here we have the the forecast, the projection that that tension, that struggle is going to continue and that God will ultimately have to act out against the Egyptians But will do so in such a way that not only will the Israelites escape, but they will plunder, they will be blessed, they will take with them as a kind of repayment or as a kind of blessing. Uh, Some of the riches of Egypt. I I don't know, Michael. I mean, I'm not sure there's a lot in this, but it opens the door, I think, to prepare us for what is coming in the in the rest of the story.
1: I think there's even more foreshadowing than that, Clint. I think you can look here in verse 17 and see that the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, these are all ites to us, and so maybe we read past them. But it also foreshadows that the people are going to have issues once they get to the promised land. It may be a land flowing with milk and honey, but they're not going to be the only ones there. And we who know the story know that it's not just the getting there that will be a problem, and boy, are there a lot of problems getting there. But there's going to be the problems once they get there And then even beyond that, in some ways, as God reveals himself to Moses, he is both communicating the solution to this problem. In other words, to say uh, that God is going to provide an answer for the people. He's going to free them from the heavy hand that is holding them captive. But then on the other hand of that, there is this implicit reality Well, it's not even implicit. I mean, it's explicit that ultimately um, this is going to bring its own kind of trouble. It's going to have its own difficulties. And this is another unique way of God revealing. When God shows up on the scene, he doesn't just speak the answer. He also names the reality that things are not necessarily going to be all better at all times. Yes, there's going to be this sort of Uh, blessing and leaving, right? This idea you're going to uh, pillage or you're going to take with you these goods. But on the other hand, uh, it's going to take a strong hand. It's going to take God's mighty hand against Israel. And, you know, so here we are. We're just in a situation where ultimately we find ourselves encountering this God who gives this timeless name, while also recognizing that that God will work in mysterious, miraculous ways, but it will not be done in such a way that all the problems of the people will be uh, completely uh, eradicated. And, and that is the beautiful complexity, Clint, of Exodus, of the Old Testament. I think the, the writers don't hide the nuances of life. And in that, I think we can celebrate the full nuance of our own lives.
0: Yeah, and I think Michael, we you know we see in that uh, a foreshadowing of the struggle. I think we also see here the promise that hangs over the difficult thing that Moses is asked to do. That Moses is being sent to a place that he doesn't want to go to to hold accountable a person he doesn't want to confront, and yet he's being sent in the promise that God will not only be with him, but that God will enact for the people's good an outcome that will be world-changing, that will be life-changing for these people. And th- that is the promise that su- ultimately will sustain Moses. Now, it's going to take him a while to get there. Uh, tomorrow, we'll begin looking at passages that that um, Moses is not 100% on board just yet, but This is the promise in which ultimately he will go that God is going to do this thing that he has promised, that God is going to bring about this thing that he has said he will do, and that Moses is going to take part of it. I think it's a very fascinating journey for Moses as to how he gets there and how he ultimately embarks on this. He's not ready to do that yet. And tomorrow we'll look uh, at, we'll begin to look at the interaction that gets him
1: there. Final word for me today here, Clint, is just the the name of God matters. And we as Christians don't put, as you've already said, the same kind of weight into the, the name Yahweh that God gives to Moses here. Uh, we're willing to to say that because of the kind of father relationship that Jesus has invited the church to have. But what we we want to be clear about, is that at the end of the day, when God introduces himself to Moses, it's relational, it's personal, it's meaningful. And here we encounter, once again, that very promise today, that the very God who said, uh, it's true yesterday, uh, it's true today, it'll be true tomorrow— That's the very God and the very promise that now comes all the way down to our own life of faith today. So wherever you find yourself and wherever uh, you have seen your life journey uh, go, however our futures will look, we don't know. Uh, The thing that we can be confident in is the very one whose name promises a constant presence. And, you know, as Christians, it's, I think, good to be reminded of that. There's, there's deep good news in just the naming that God gives this day to Moses. And as we continue on the journey through Exodus, I think it's a gift that we can carry with us.
0: Yeah, thanks for being with us. Uh, We'll continue tomorrow. Hope you can make it. And uh, as always, we appreciate your time.